0: Welcome to the Painless Podcast. It's Chris Hartwig from Painless Networking. Learn more about Painless at www.painless.network. And wherever you're listening, your desk, maybe it's a treadmill, falling into deep sleep somewhere, Painless Podcasts are all about getting connected with good human beings in sports and event marketing. We're going beyond sound bites with smart, interesting, and generous people trying to learn how and why They've reached the point that they're at. Real quick, before I tell you about today's guest, John Guppy, president and founder of Guilt Edge Soccer Marketing, I need to thank this week's sponsor for making the pod possible. Illini RST Celeb Am Golf Outing, benefiting the U of I Department of Recreation, Sport, and Tourism Scholarship Fund. That's right. Play golf with your favorite former fighting Illini at the Illini RST Celeb Am Outing on Friday, August 11th. It's at Deerfield Golf Club in Riverwoods, Illinois, foursomes and whole sponsorships are uh, now available. Visit www.alini or contact Painless member Nick Lapin at nicklappin@aol.com. at aol.com. That's N I K L A P I N at aol.com. Experience the best silent auction and raffle on the North Shore. Nick, That's Nick's promise. We'll hold him to it. Uh, there's, uh, the reason why is there's a chance to win fabulous stay and plays at French Lick Resort, Kohler, uh, World Golf Village, and many more top golf and vacation spots. And you get to play with Illini legends like Jim Grabowski, Lucas Johnson, Robert Archibald, plus painless members Dion Thomas and Kurt Kittner, and many more. www.illinirstgolfouting.com All right, John Guppy. Most of us probably best know John's name from his time as president and CEO of the MLS's Chicago Fire from 2005 to 2008. John Hales from Winchester, England, lifelong fan of Southampton FC, came to the States to play collegiately, and uh, we don't talk about it in the pod, but uh, should note John was a two-time All-American and won a national championship at New Hampshire College. Talks about his path into uh, agency world, getting his MBA, uh, moving on to an MLS team first in New York, and then uh, creating his own agency after leaving the fire. Now as the World Cup is drawing closer, thought this would be a good time to get John on and share some great soccer marketing and uh, soccer fan wisdom from his well-educated perspective. I have to also thank GESM's uh, managing partner, Scott Hutchinson, who's uh, John mentions in here, he initiated the pod. Great guest suggestion, as well as uh, Matt Clay, an account director there, for making it happen last week. Known Scott and Matt a long time, and appreciate all their help. Um, you can follow John on Twitter at Soccer Marketer, while Guilt Edge Soccer is at Soccer Marketing guilt edge soccer website is really pretty solid with lots of info and they share some of the insights including the six types of soccer fans we talk about at www.giltededgesoccer.com. all right let's get going enough of me let's get connected with john guppy from the offices of Gilt Edge Soccer Marketing in Naperville, Illinois, let's welcome John Guppy to the Painless Podcast. Welcome, John. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be with you. Oh, thank you. Let's talk a little bit about what I like to do is give us cur- current role, and then we'll roll back into ho- how you got here. What, what's, uh, what are you up to these days?
1: Yeah, happy to. Uh, Guilt Edge Soccer Marketing is the name of the agency that uh, I founded with my partner Scott Hutchison uh, nine years ago in September, which is pretty incredible for me to, to think about the, right. the length of time we've been, we've been running this, uh, this show. But um, I'll give you a little backstory as we go through the conversation, but uh, the quick headline is we are a marketing agency, solely focused uh, in the space of soccer, um, helping brands,
0: big brands typically, um, connect with the soccer consumer here in the US. And we were talking about you have about a dozen People are so on staff at this at this point at Gil's Edge, right
1: yeah, we've pivoted over the years up and down a little bit, but uh, we have eleven in the office right now, and then we have an extended network of people around the country um, that's you know help us scale up based on some of the projects that we may have so uh, yeah, so it's been a fun journey so far and it's not ending anytime soon
0: well you you uh um, as they would say, talk a little funny. Uh, I don't think it's, it's a Texas accent. Uh, where where is the uh, accent come from? Where'd you grow up?
1: It's definitely not a Texas accent. <laughs> uh, I grew up in Winchester, England, which is about 12, 14 miles outside of Southampton. So uh, that's my team. We talk a lot about soccer, football. You can call it whatever you want. But um, you know, growing up in England, I mean that's, that's pretty much how it works. you know SO237LZ was my postcode and you know SO is a Southampton postcode. so that's, that's your team. there's no discussion, there's no debate. <laughs> um, that's for good or for bad, who you follow and I, I still obviously follow them very closely today. Um, but that's where I grew up and you know soccer has been singularly the most important driver of everything in my career, personally, professionally.. And again, we'll get into some of that, I'm sure. Right. But um, yeah, that's where I you know, kicked the and tires, so to speak, yeah, when I was a kid.
0: Did you, I'm assuming along with that, that you played a lot of the sport growing up and that was a big part of life, not only being a fan, but playing, participating as yeah,
1: well, Yeah, right? no question. It's funny, we were talking about it the other day. I mean, I, you know, I only really had two possessions that I cared about as a kid, my soccer ball and my bike, because <laughs> that's how I got from the local field park to, uh, to my house back and forth. Um, And it really was as simple as that, particularly when you think about, you know, what kids today um, have an experience. But, um, yeah, soccer was always... The only thing really, music became important to me once I got into my, you know, teenage years a little bit, but soccer was always the, the driving, you know, factor in terms of, you know, what I did, um, what I was interested in, and obviously, you know, I've continued that in a career yeah, now. Yeah, what kind
0: of neighborhood was that? Was it a working class, middle class, How, you know, what kind of... Yeah, kinda... it, was, it was a middle class,
1: you know, rural type community. I mean, soccer is so pervasive over there, sure. it almost doesn't matter, you know, where you are in the country or, you know, what, what kind of environment you're, you know, you're connected to. Soccer is the sport. You know, rugby has its place. Cricket has its place. But none of them um, back in the day, and still not today, right. you know, come close to the pervasive nature of, of football.
0: And when you were a teenager, um, were you thinking, you know, I'm going to be a, I'm going to play, or I'm going to be working for a team. Were you thinking at that point you were going to be in the sport somehow? Yeah. it was the goal? I,
1: yeah, no question. I mean, I, it's changed a, little, a lot, actually, since, you know, the 80s. We're talking about, you know, mid-80s here when, you know, I was in those teenage years. Um, but I signed what they called at the time associated schoolboy Contracts. So on my 14th birthday, uh, I signed a contract with Southampton, my local team. Um, every pro, c- pro club had the ability to sign up to 30 schoolboys. You know, the clubs with, quote-unquote, more money would sign 30. The clubs with less <laughs> right. money would sign less. Um, so that was a big deal. Um, you know that was definitely the first step towards being a pro. Um, I remember those days vividly and, you know, those experiences, I think of, you know, I've carried them forward, you know, into other parts of my life. But, um, yeah, when when you sign a pro contract at 14, um, there's a lot of expectations that Mm -hmm. they have. I mean, we, I, I joke with my kids. I mean, we would go to practice two, three times a week, a game on the weekend. You had to wear, um, the Southampton football club tie to every single practice. So you couldn't show up to a random practice on a Tuesday night where there's absolutely no one around to see you. But if you didn't have that tie on, then you were definitely ridiculed and they looked at you you like you're not following the rules here. And and again, I just think I learned a lot of what it means to be a professional from that experience. Ultimately, I didn't go on to be a professional soccer player, but I do think that it was a bedrock in terms of how to conduct yourself, perhaps, in, Hmm. in certain settings. What was your position? I was a creative midfielder. Creative. There you Love go. A little it. bit of a box to box. I still play today, but I am definitely not a box to box player, as my teammates will tell you. <laughs> I, I kind of hover around about fifteen yards in the middle of the field. But uh, you no, went I was from a creat- box
0: to box to cherry picking. Now,
1: right? <laughs> Pretty much. Um, but yeah, I was a creative ball playing midfielder.
0: And so, how did you end up at uh, your undergrad? You went to Southern New Hampshire, mm-hmm. right? Was that was soccer the the pull to play for? for the school? Is that yeah, what it was? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I was, as I said, I was at Southampton as an associated um, You know, The next step on the ladder there would have been an apprenticeship, uh, and I did not get offered an apprenticeship. I, weirdly, I was a non-contract player, contract player, if that's an oxymoron, <laughs> I think it probably is, for about a year. Um, and then I sat down with the club, and it was a pivotal moment. They're like, look, we, we don't think you're going to make the grade with us, so you have a couple of options. You can go to some of the other pro teams that were in the area. We can help make those connections for you. Or we happen to have this guy from some college, university in America, and they literally almost tossed a piece of paper across the table to me with with a name and a number on it um, of a guy who was the uh, assistant coach at the time of New Hampshire College and they were looking for players to come over on on scholarships. So very weird, very random. Um, You know, I picked up the phone, and and this guy was called John Mitchell. Uh, I gave John a call, and, you know, fast forward, you know, about a year, I ended up uh, landing in in Boston, another funny story actually, I landed in Boston in 1986. I'd looked at the map and I'm like, oh, I'm going to school in Boston. <laughs> and uh, they picked me up in the minivan and we're driving north on 93 out of Boston. I'm looking behind me, you know, <laughs> where, where's that city going? And getting
0: smaller and getting smaller. Getting smaller and smaller. <laughs>
1: and sure enough, about an hour later, you know, I land in, in Manchester, New Hampshire, and that's obviously where the school is. So yeah, that's how I came over. It was all about soccer. Um, I plan to come over for my four years, go back to England and continue life. And I'd say about a year into that, um, I think I realized that I probably was not going back.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You were indoctrinated into, uh, the U S so the, um, you then uh, did stay in, in Massachusetts specifically, right. And got the, an MBA in sport management at UMass Amherst, one of the top programs in the country for that, that was probably in its infancy of a program, right? It was
1: relatively, again, I look back on it, and in preparation for talking to you today, I was reflecting last night on on some of these moments. I mean, so 1989, I was a senior um, at New Hampshire, and the World Cup had already been announced that it was, um, or it was about to be announced, actually, that it was coming to the U.S. in 94. Mm and in my mind i'm like i want to get into the business of sports marketing and you know back in the day you'd go to the library and you'd find those microfiche you know <laughs> oh, files geez, and yeah. you know you'd try and do some hunting on you know what does sports marketing actually mean and i stumbled across uh, a company called IMG i stumbled across a company called ISL And I'm like, this is what I want to do. I want to work for a company that does this specifically in the soccer space. But everybody that I would talk to had no idea what I was talking about. You'd say you want to work in sports marketing. They'd like, oh, you want to go work for Adidas or Nike. And I'm like, no, I want to work for a marketing agency. So I'll skip a couple of chapters, but uh, (laughs) I ultimately realized that I need a master's degree to kind of advance my credentials to get into the industry. UMass and Ohio um, were the Harvard, are the Harvard and Yale, I think of, of sports marketing. So I applied to UMass. And I'll never forget my, my interview. I was there for about an hour and a half. Glenn Wong was running the program at the time. And it was, it was really a validation for my desire to get into the sports industry. Here I could actually, for the first time, sit across the table and talk to somebody about IMG oh, and yeah. ISL. And it was real. And I could have an you know, intelligent discussion. So that was kind of a defining moment. You know, I hadn't even been accepted into the program, it was really just the interview. Um, and I actually got waitlisted. Um, and then they called me up and said that you know i was one of the 30 slots that they had so that was really a pivotal moment for but me to that's step where into you the felt industry. that
0: right this is a legit thing i've got uh, you're kind of looking around like these are my people totally totally huh.
1: because before that i you know i'm like i think there's something here but i really can't talk to anybody about it i don't know anybody in the industry so validation is probably the right word that huh. i got from that
0: initial umass experience and what about what about back home where your folks and your mates all going, well, hey, why aren't you coming back? Uh, you know, what was... Uh,
1: I, think, I think they'd probably realized that that wasn't going to happen a few years earlier. Um, <laughs> What I thought you were going to say is, you know, what did your, your your parents think about you moving into the sports industry? And my answer will be and is, I still don't think my mother has any idea what I do for work every day. I think if you asked her right now, what does your son do? She would have no idea how to really answer the question.
0: <laughs> and is she still, she's still living in... She's,
1: yeah, my dad passed a number of years ago, but my mother's still alive and kicking in the house we grew up in. And, oh my gosh. Yeah, doing well, thanks. Oh, that's awesome.
0: So you've... You... Stuck decided, you know, you were, you were here in the States and went through the MBA program. What was the, the next move for you from there? What was the f- first job or were you in, you know, did it start with an internship at school? Where, where'd that go?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, and again, I don't think that's necessarily changed too much today. I mean, everybody that talks about the sports industry um, will inevitably talk about the challenge of entry. Right, getting sure. in, getting in is is in some ways the hardest part. Once you're in, I do believe if you do a job, I think your reputation precedes you, and if you enjoy it, I think you can build a long and successful career. But mm-hmm. getting in is hard, and it was hard back in the day. So part of what I think the UMasses of the world bring to the table is is now their alumni connections. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a little easier. But to your point, I was relatively early in their program. They really didn't have too many alumni connections, certainly in the soccer space. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of came back to me. But the the internship to me was the you know that was the opportunity to to go and find that first you know, step on the on the career, so to speak. And um, I must have been extremely fortunate. I uh, I knew that I wanted to work for you know something related to soccer, something related to World Cup there was only one marketing agency in the US (laughs) that worked in the soccer space. And that was a company called Soccer USA Partners based in New York City. So I literally just narrowed my job search to (laughs) one company. (laughs) And uh, I can't exactly remember how it all came about, but somehow I, I, I must have picked up the phone and called the main number, and I got connected eventually, probably after six or seven tries, um, to a guy who happened to have grown up in one of the neighboring towns in England. Oh, <laughs> his name was Michael Domakin. So, you know, instantly I had something to talk about, right? An icebreaker, something mm-hmm. to build a little bit of rapport. Um, which, again, I look back on it, dumb luck, right? Right. Um, so, so that's how I first connected, and. I eventually forced myself in for an interview, essentially. So I went down (laughs) into New York, I met with uh, Michael and some of the other folks, and I uncovered during that discussion that there was a tremendous um, lack of research in terms of who is is the US soccer fan. Hmm. They really had nothing. I mean, they had literally nothing. So I'll give myself a little credit here, because (laughs) I think I saw an opportunity, and I knew enough to be dangerous in terms of talking about research from school projects that I'd done. So I essentially pitched them on the notion of taking a, a three month internship and from soup to nuts, you know, developing, delivering, executing and reporting on a comprehensive research study on you know, who is the soccer fan in the US. And they're like, this sounds great. So I, I left that meeting fully expecting that this was gonna happen. And then as so often happens, you know, they get busy, they do other things, and I hear nothing. And I keep following up, keep following up, I get no response. And I remember in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna give this one more try. And I called Michael Dharmakan, I think it was on a Thursday, and I got through to him. And I'm like, Michael, you know, is this gonna happen? I think we've had some great discussions. And he's like, let me put you on hold for one second. Puts me on hold, comes back two minutes later. He's like, I've talked to the boss, and we'll make this happen. We've got no money. Mm. You have to be in New York on Monday to start this event, start this project, because we have an event in a week's time that we think would be the perfect place to start capturing you know, intercept surveys. Um, and do you want to do it? And I was like, absolutely, I'm in. So you hang up the phone, you're like, oh. Yeah.
0: Oh, crap. What now I've got to make do? this happen. So
1: <laughs> I did. I figured out a way to get myself down to New York and... That's that's how I got my foot in the door.
0: And how, how long did you end up there for a while at uh, Soccer Partner?
1: I did. So <laughs> I think there's a second story here. Which so if I give myself credit for for getting in, <laughs> I think I think the next step is 100% dumb luck. So I, I did the the three month project, delivered the results, um, did a good job, but now it was okay. Now I want a job, and they they said we we don't have an opening. Hmm. So I was like, "Hmm, this is a bit of a problem." Um, and very randomly, one of the ladies, um, who's still a very good friend of mine today, Bess Brodsky, was an account manager, um, was leaving on maternity leave. So they basically had a void for you know several months, right when I was done with my three-month you know internship. Oh. So it just presented the need for the for the agency that I was the easy solve for, and. You know, that's how I got my quote-unquote first you know, job um, with Soccer USA Partners and was there for a while. So the, the story uh, basically follows. Soccer USA Partners was owned by API, which is Alan Pascoe, um, which is a big international sports marketing agency. Um, IPG, the big ad uh, firm, um, public holding company, wanted to create a a super sports agency. So they... Moved into the acquisition mode. They bought Advantage International um, for its u s presence, and they bought API for its European presence. I happen to be one of the few guys that work for API in New York. Uh, okay. And they merged those two companies together. and that was the creation of Octagon, which we all know now, obviously as you know one of the leaders in our industry. But uh, I was there from you know the the conceiving of octagon and uh ultimately worked for octagon in its first two years moved to connecticut uh we were in new york at the time moved up to connecticut and uh you know that was the next chapter for me and then you know i was about nine years i think into the ad agency at that point um ad agency world at that point is when i kind of jumped ship and uh moved to that next phase of my career which was the you know, the pro side of things with the MetroStars.
0: Yeah, what kind of, before we get into the working on the team side, yeah. what kind of stuff were you were you doing there with Soccer Partners and API, Octagon? You were mostly consulting for brands or were you brokering uh, partnership deals? What, what kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, it was a little bit of,
1: uh, I mean, during my time there, it changed a little bit. I mean, it's, it started out as I was a pure straight up account manager. So I had, um, and again, this was leading into World Cup 94. So a lot of the clients that, um, Soccer USA partners represented the US national team. Mm. So a lot of the big brands that wanted to frankly leverage the World Cup also bought into US soccer as an extension and opportunity to do that. So I had um, uh, MasterCard and Fuji Film, if you remember that company from back in the day. Uh Um, I had three of the Densu clients, Canon, JVC, and Fuji. Oh, wow. I had Chiquita Bananas, which was actually one of the most active brands in soccer back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I was your classic you know, account manager. They'd all signed on. I managed their deliverables. And all of them, them were now. activating.
0: So you had, I mean, that was a lot because it was all around. It wasn't that, okay, these are at World Cup and these would be at yeah. the Super Bowl or some deal with Major League Baseball. This was all activating at the World Cup. Yeah. and those were all wow. Yeah, they
1: were all active. I mean, Mastercard was super active. I had Sprint as well um, that became super active. So uh, I mean, I I mean, it was fantastic for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was still a kid, you know, paving my way in the industry, and you know, you're flying to U.S. National Team was based in Mission Viejo at the time. You know, you're flying to Mission Viejo to work with a number of agencies that are collaborating on a um, MasterCard promotion with Pele. So you know, mm-hmm. you're flying to California, you're on the company's dime, you're, you know, you're delivering an experience with you know, the most iconic player in the history of the game, <laughs> right. and getting paid to do it. And I'm like, this is, this is fantastic. Uh-huh. Huh. <laughs> so classic account management. Then I definitely got into the sales side a little bit. I was one of the guys pounding the pavements, you know, trying to sell new companies on soccer.
0: Um, well, now we're at that, around that point, like in, even going with the companies you're working for in 94, that whole list, how much handholding was there? I mean, I'm being presumptive, but I'm imagining a lot of them actually needed them, needed you to tell them what the heck to do, right? Well, okay, we're partnering or we're thinking of doing this and you could go, well, well that's not. What we would say today, authentic. I'm, am I right in assuming that, or were you actually surprised at how progressive any of these companies were?
1: No, I think. I mean, it's it's definitely true, and it's it's still true today. I mean, I think brands in every sport, but you know, certainly in the sport of soccer, which is one of the reasons we created our company, mm-hmm. is you you do need you know steering. I do think you know, firmly, you need specialized expertise to maximize your opportunity in soccer. But back in the nineties, I, I don't know. I just think it was. It was a much simpler business, right? I mean, it was still largely about, you know, placed media, um, hospitality experiences, you know, experiential marketing, um, some promotions. So I just think it was a much easier time. Um, So I wouldn't say necessarily that we steered our clients, frankly, as much as I think we steer them today. Hmm. I think we were more, you know, frontline, on the ground, you know, helping support their execution um, and then, really, just managing and trafficking assets, you know, right. local approvals, you know, ticket and hospitality privileges, you know, signage, you know, all of the typical assets that sponsorships would create, tracking and delivering.
0: Okay, so now, now we're up to 2000, right? And moving team side first in New York, right? MetroStars. Yeah. Did you seek that out? Were you sought out? Uh, you know, funny story. How, how did that happen?
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's funny. I kind of, again, was reflecting on this last night as I kind of look back at uh, my career a little bit. I, I never, really, never really had the classic mentor, right? I've never really mm-hmm. been around the guy or the girl that um, takes you under their wing and, and kind of guides you and teaches you. Um, but notwithstanding that, there are a number of people who have been very influential, I think, in mm-hmm. in the development of my career. And one of them is Kevin Payne, who was at Soccer USA Partners, went on to be the president, um, chief executive of DC United, um, similar position with Toronto FC, now runs US club soccer, and is very much um, a leading figure, has been a leading figure in the business of soccer for for a long, long time. Kevin was was, one of the people that, for whatever reason, I think believed in me from day one. Um, I think he he always just gave me confidence that I could succeed. I found myself in environments that probably I shouldn't have been in. I was maybe out of my depth, (laughs) but he's like, you'll be fine. And I, I remember once we had a pitch to USA Airways, actually, this was back in the Soccer USA Partners days. I think it was in DC, and Kevin and I were supposed to do the pitch. And his flight got canceled because um, of weather. So I'm in D.C. on my own. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so obviously the meeting's not happening, right? I mean, I was still a kid. <laughs> right. And he's like, no, the meeting's happening. Um, you're going to do it, and you will be just fine. Just, you know, trust the deck, because the deck was written, written well from a storytelling standpoint, and you'll be just fine. So I look back, and there's a number of those little examples where, again, I have just found myself in situations where, you're forced to perform. And Kevin believed in me. Mm-hmm. So to get back to answering your question, how did I get to the MetroStars? Um, the Metro Stars, Charlie Stilatano was the president of the MetroStars from the early days. Uh, Nick Sakevich had replaced him and Nick was looking to essentially rebuild the front office. And Kevin called Nick and said, mm-hmm. hey, you know, there's only one guy you really need to talk to and it's this guy John Guppy. would um, not you give him a call? So Nick gave me a call and we got together, and
0: that's how it all happened. That worked yeah, That worked out pretty well. <clears throat> how did you like being in New York City?
1: Loved it. I loved, I mean, SUSAP was in, Soccer USA Partners was in New York. So I'd been in New York for a number of years prior to that. Um, I love Chicago, but I, I really love New York. Mm-hmm. I think it took me about a year to kind of, it took me maybe six months to get comfortable with New York. It took me like another six months to begin to appreciate New York. But I would say after about a year, I think I fell in love with New York. Mm. Um, I just love the energy and the vibe of being in that city um, across the board. So, you know, that was that was fantastic.
0: It be, and it being an international city, <clears throat> I'm curious. I don't want to sidetrack our conversation too much, but I'd be curious to talk about Chicago and New York. Is it, I, mean, I know it's different, but is it easier to market in New York because you have so much more... Uh, You know, I thought broader base with more people of Mm. international and reaching you know more. I've always said
1: it's actually the total opposite. I Mm. think the hardest job in look nothing's easy in the soccer industry. Mm. I mean, we've come a long way, a long way in two decades, but it's still not easy. Um, But I think the hardest job in soccer in America is selling major league soccer in New York. Because I think you to your point, you have all of the international ethnicities that have their own passions for the sport, whether it's, you know Colombians, Mexicans, Ecuadorians, Peruvians, you know, Italians, Irish, you can go through almost every ethnicity there is. Most of them are passionate about soccer. Most mm. of them have their their connections. But they have
0: their team. But they have their right? team.
1: Like you have your team from wherever they come from. Right, And then in terms of all of the entertainment competition, I mean, there obviously is no market anywhere close to New York in terms of the entertainment dollars, that options that people have. So I actually think it's the hardest thing possible. And I used to tell people just on the ethnic side when I came to Chicago, you know, I'm like, this is great. I really only have two ethnic communities that I need to care about, the Mexican community and the Polish community. (laughs) And in New York, you had... Twenty, and you were almost like a deer in headlights sometimes, <laughs> not knowing where to turn because there was so much opportunity and you just didn't want to say no to things. But at the end of the day, you easily would spread yourselves thin. Here in Chicago, I think it's much much easier to kind of
0: hone in. So talk a little bit about that too then of th- how long were you in New York and how did the Chicago – because next was Chicago Fire, right? So how did the – how long were you there, and how did it end up that you ended up here in, in Chicago?
1: Yeah, so 2000 is that right? 2000, I joined the Metro Stars team, was owned by Metro Media at the time. John Kluge, Stuart Subotnick. Um, 9/11 hits. Um, they take a hit in the market, like many people did, and essentially were advised to shed some assets. Uh, on that asset list was the Metro Stars. Oh. So Metro Media ultimately sold to uh, AEG, Phil Anschutz. So they took over the team. Um, so I worked for AEG. So, was yeah.
0: that his first team in MLS? No.
1: I mean, during that time, uh, Phil owned half the league, right. five or six teams. I
0: couldn't, I didn't know the timing of, what was his first team in uh, Colorado? Colorado
1: is where he's, you know, he's based. Mm-hmm. You know, Colorado and LA were their, you know, the pivotal first two teams. Okay. But then, you know, frankly, I, I don't think there was that many billionaires that believed in soccer. So you have to give Phil Anschutz a lot of credit as a visionary. He believed. He's like, look, I don't want to own half this league, but if I need to, I will, because I believe in the long term, and I can. And he did. (laughs) And he did. And over time, he's obviously sold off of all of those those teams, which gets back to answering your question on how I got to Chicago. Um, You know, at the time, I mean, he really goes down in history as there are others too, you know, Lamar Hunt uh, being a notable right. one that really believed. So I worked for AEG. Um, AEG owned the Chicago Fire. Uh, and in 2004, 2005, they were making the transition um, uh, into their new stadium at Toyota Park. Um, so the business is really, I think, at a pivotal um, point where they were looking sure. to make a bit of a step change. And, you know, they asked me to, to come in and and you know, run the fire, um, which was you know, an obvious answer. My goal had always been, Chris, to mm-hmm. try and be a president, CEO of a major league soccer team before I was 40. Um, that was my goal. And you know here I'm sitting in my mid-30s, late 30s, and the opportunities presented to me. So it was never, never a question whether I was going to take it. Um, my wife cried her eyes out for about a <laughs> week. Cause she did not want to leave New Jersey. Where is she from? Um, she's from upstate New York. She's from New York, um, okay. But uh, she got over that eventually. <laughs> and, uh, she loves Chicago now. Um, so that's how I, I, I landed here in, uh, in 2005.
0: What did, uh, you know, what was your first kind of plan of attack here then? You had the stadium, obviously, was a, a great opportunity, and the team was, was already set. Like, what were the first... What was the first thing or first few things that you either came in, implemented, or changed that you saw, you know, help take the fire up another level or more?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was I was hired. I mean, it's funny these, again, the league has evolved so much, but I was basically the president, um, general manager, and chief executive. I mean, I essentially had three titles. Now those are three distinct jobs, and rightly so. Um, but I was really brought in from a business standpoint. You know, the team had missed the playoffs the year before, but team-wise, I, I think ownership felt like you know, that could rectify itself and that was okay. But it was really the business side of things. It's like, you know, we're, we're moving into this new stadium. Now is our, ch- our chance to significantly drive revenues, um, sponsorship revenues, stadium-related revenues. Ticket sales needed to significantly increase because of the new opportunity. So I was really hired for, for the business side of things. Um, so that's where I focused, you know, right out of the gate. Um, you know, internal in terms of do we have the right staff? Where do we need to, you know, add? Um, where do we need to kind of shape our sales and marketing efforts but it was really about you know managing the transition into the new stadium and monetizing that opportunity.
0: And with all that load I guess I'm just I'm curious too of how did you uh, and I'm sure the general answer is put good people around you in terms of player personnel and development and contracts and draft all those kinds of things. How did you then uh, Put the operation in place to be able to do that because the team went on. Then you had said they hadn't made the playoffs, but then they actually you guys turned it turned it around. You know, how did you do that without having to be into the weeds, or did you have to just be in the weeds on five different things at the same yeah, time? Yeah,
1: I mean, you kind of are in the weeds on five different things. And you know, back in the day, there was you know 10, 12 teams in MLS, twelve teams at that time. Um, so making the playoffs was easier. Than it is today, mm-hmm. where you know you have <coughs> 22 teams now. So the, the the soccer side of things, it was easier to kind of get that in line um, than perhaps the business side of things mm. was. So again, I focused most of my time on on the business. I think I was I ran the fire for three years. I think if you go through that progression, once I got into year two and year three. I probably had a little bit more of a um, balanced split between all those responsibilities, which, quite frankly, I absolutely loved. I I loved the ability to go into work one day and say, okay, this morning I'm going to spend my time in the locker room with my coaching staff as a general manager, Mm -hmm. working on team and player-related topics. And this afternoon I'm going to sit with my ticketing department and you know, get into the weeds on you know where are we on ticket sales and mm-hmm. renewals and new sales strategies, and I just love that. I just love the ability for every day to be totally different. Um, to your point, tried to surround myself with some good people that were minding the store in each of those departments every day, which allowed me to kind of bop around and and do what I did. And um, it was fantastic. I mean, I absolutely, again, loved every minute of that.
0: How much did you fall back on, on any of these things, really, of growing up and in, in being a competitive footballer, competitive soccer player? It, was that helpful? Did you find it actually you know, could be a, tr- a problem because of the competitiveness or you know, any kind of stories that you'd share about that at that point? Uh, you know, because especially wearing a general manager's hat... You know, of being able to evaluate talent and those things, H- how did you uh, use that to your advantage?
1: Yeah, I mean, g- general manager has different connotations. So <laughs> um, there are a couple of players that I will take credit for in the history of the Chicago Fire. But generally, I was not evaluating talent. <laughs> I was more. The general manager role responsibilities that I was performing was much more of the administrative side of you know, balancing the salary cap, managing negotiations with agents. And even the league is very heavily involved in that. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't so much about, you know, John Guppy's out on a field and I think, oh this guy could be our, our next <laughs> player. Um, so so you had that. But no, I would definitely draw upon my experiences as a player. I mean, I just think being in a competitive professional locker room. Um, not a lot of people get a chance to do that. And I think being around, you know, successful athletes that are all generally the same type of personality, mm-hmm. um, I just think, you know, gave me a good foundation, even though I never played at the high pro level, I'd been in that world.
0: Um, and I was well, that's comfortable you, you in that. You talked about the tie and those things. Though. Like yeah. there, there was a certain approach that you had to it that you were exposed to, even if you weren't on the big club. You still saw that stuff, and that, that was handy, I'm sure. So, okay, so we're almost up to current day. The fire, you were there three seasons, and then guilt-edge soccer marketing. Why leave the fire, and why start your own agency instead of maybe going in and running you know, an established one?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it was almost three years exactly that I was with... The Chicago Fire. So again, I joined the club um, when it was owned by AEG, and you know, two you, little over two years into it, uh, Tim Lewicki, who ran AEG, called me up and said, "Hey, I need you to um, spend some time with a group of uh, folks that are coming to Chicago that might be interested in buying the team. You know, can you show them around, give them a tour, um, impress them? Quite frankly, and I hung up that phone and I'm like, hmm." this could be the beginning of the end for me. <laughs> because if new ownership buys this team, you know, chances are new ownership's going to probably want to do their own thing. So um, I mean, that's essentially what happened. So AEG sold to uh, Andel, Andrew Hauptman. Andrew came in um, at the end of 2007. Is that right? 2007. And you know, essentially around April of 2008, um, is when I was you know, fired. So um, I look back on that and it, it, it was painful, right? I mean, it's oh, never sure. easy to get fired, particularly no. when you're in, sh- in Chicago and the name of the team is the Chicago Fire and the back page of the Chicago Tribune says Guppy Fired. I mean, that's, you know, that hits, that stings a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, but I think with the benefit of you know, nine years now or so of, of retrospect, it probably was one of the best things that could have happened to me because hmm. I, I think I learned a lot throughout the experience. Um, very interesting to me, you know, you know, how many people call you after they hear the news that, you know, you've been let go, who calls you, who doesn't call you. I just found that whole experience, you know, very interesting. Um, and again, I think you kind of, you know, lean on that a little bit. But really what it did was I had a long-term contract, so financially I was in a a good spot. Mm -hmm. I'd always, in my mind, said, I want to run my own company. Not sure, frankly, if I hadn't had that type of a situation Mm -hmm. put in front of me, whether I would have had the guts to do it. Right, at that particular time, but it allowed you to do that. Right, and that's an important point because, you know, this was 2008, so the world was falling apart. So I'm like, okay, yeah, right. what what should every smart person do? Let's start a brand new business, right? <laughs> but it was almost, you know, it was almost meant to be because I said, I, I didn't feel like I had to make money now. I had the benefit of, you know, a, a long-term contract, good gardening leave, as they would say in England. Hmm. So it, it was the foundation. If you're ever going to do it, John, now is the time to do it. Um, and so that's what I did. So... Um, you know, that summer of 2008, um, in addition to making up for all the missed family vacations over years <laughs> right. gone by, yeah, I started, you know, <laughs> building the vision for the agency that we have today and, um, and then I launched the company, as I said, around September of, 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 that year, but, um, again, I look back on it and it was really a taking all of my experiences from the agency world, melding them with my experiences for being on the team side. And you know, building this you know this agency that um, actually was modelled on motorsports agencies, hmm. um, golf specific agencies, um, you know, just marketing international JMI, sure. the motorsports agency out of although um, now they're with yeah. Chime, but back in the day they're in indie. indie. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember vividly looking at their website and just seeing so many of their services, so many of the ways that they talked about. Specialization within motorsports, and I basically said to myself, You know, why doesn't this exist in soccer? Right? If if brands want to get into motorsports and they call JMI, who does a brand call if they want to get into soccer? There is no answer for that. They're going to all the general sports marketing agencies. Uh, which are good, but it's just different, right? I mean, specialized agency is different from, um, you know, a, a general marketing agency. Yeah. So that was really the very simple vision that I just, you know, built the uh, the
0: and whole company on. Did you have on. people telling you um, that's too simple, that you can't build something off just soccer? I mean, did yes. you get a lot of blowback from yes. that? Yes, yeah. People? I would imagine.
1: And again, I look back on that and... Um, I mean, it was a pretty defining moment. People said to me, you are crazy. Do not, (laughs) first of all, don't start an agency during this climate, you're nuts. But more importantly, don't start a soccer marketing agency. You're limiting yourself to a pool that isn't big enough. Start a a sports marketing agency. And my answer was always the same. I don't think the world needs another sports marketing agency. Hmm. How am I going to be any different from the ones that are out there, many of whom are very good, Um, I think a smaller pond is the way to go. Let's be the best at one thing. Let's, you know, stick to our knitting, and I think that that's what we've done very well as an agency. Smartest thing we ever did, and we didn't appreciate it or comprehend it at the time, was putting the word soccer in the name of our company. (laughs) You know, Guilt Edge Soccer Marketing tells everybody that, ah, these guys do soccer. Guilt Edge Sports Marketing would have told people nothing. So, yeah, people thought I was crazy starting a soccer agency, but um, and
0: why guilt edge? Is that's that- a funny story
1: too. Uh, guilt edge. There's a couple of reasons. So, guilt edge is actually a, a financial um, term for the most valuable securities. If you want to buy the most valuable premium um, security or bond, you buy a guilt edge security. So, the best premium is essentially what it means. It's also a little bit of a um, commentator's term that they use, particularly in the United Kingdom uh, or in England, when, um, uh, you know, a, a guilt-edge goal-scoring opportunity is missed. So when the center forward misses the goal from four yards, they or would say... there might be a
0: golden opportunity here in the missed, States. Exactly. It's a guilt-edge, right? You've
1: missed a guilt-edge opportunity. So <laughs> I just thought it was a fun play on words. Um, soccer marketing was key because that's what we did. Uh-huh. And... Um, it's been good. I mean, people do exactly what you just said. They're like, why is your company called Guilt Edge again? And it's a conversation starter.
0: Right, exactly. Now, how did you, you mentioned starting with Scott Hutchinson. Was it just the two of you to start with? And what was there? Was it completely blank slate? Did you have some business lined up? How, how did you make a go of it at mm, the beginning?
1: That's that's a funny story, too. So I started it as a consultancy. So Guilt Edge Soccer Marketing was created by me as a consultancy uh, working out of my home office and I realized after six or eight months that I didn't like being a consultant. I, 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 you know, I'd gone from the Chicago Fire where I had 40, 50 people I was talking to every day to talking to myself and staring at the mirror. <laughs> and it just wasn't for me. So I vividly remember that I went into my very simple website uh, of the time and I deleted the word um, consultancy mm-hmm. and I wrote the word agency. And I started picking up the phone and saying, "Look, I need to build a company here, an agency. I don't want to do it on my own. I want to do it with somebody else. Who can I do it with? So let me find a partner to uh, to take this journey with me, essentially." And I looked at a few different folks. A couple of them, I would say, had very similar um, backgrounds to myself, uh, very similar you know rolodex to myself, and. I basically sat back and said, that's not what I want. That may be easy, that may be comfortable, because I know these people really well. But at the end of the day, if two people are doing Mm -hmm. the same thing, one of them's redundant. So I need to find somebody that has a totally different perspective, um, some common thinking, but bring something different to the table. And that's when I connected with Scott, who I knew a little bit. He was with Draft FCB at the time, had been in Denver. They brought him back here to Chicago. And he was just kind of starting out on his own little agency. Mm. Um, so we were at similar places in terms of what we were trying to build. Scott is much more of a general sports marketing guy. Mm-hmm. Soccer's clearly a big part of his right. DNA. Um, but he'd come from, you know, classic ad agency world. I'd come from sports marketing agency slash soccer world. So, again, I just think our, we looked at the world from different sides, and I still to this day like to think that you know when we bring those thoughts together I mean it's a pretty it's a pretty good combination so it's worked out fantastic
0: and and how long was it that you were kind of you know uh, comfortable enough with you started bringing more people on did you land some business that needed more account management or something like that fairly quickly or was it a was it a grind? Were you sitting there going, oh, boy, is this going to really work? Yeah. Those kinds of stories? What, no,
1: what? definitely. In those early days, and again, if you think about it, it was 2008, 2009. So, I mean, I, I think my first 12 months of operation, I think the gross income, this was before I even really started partnering with Scott. Yeah. That was after about a year. I think my gross income was like $16,000. <laughs> right. I mean, thank goodness I had, you know, a, a fallback from my Chicago fire contract. But... Um, It was very tough. You were kind of like feeling your way. Um, And I'll never forget the first real contract, real account that we won was Unilever, who is still a big um, client of ours today. And they used to have an office here in Chicago. So I would go and spend time with them. But I sat with them. And they're like, look, we don't totally get it. We don't totally understand what you do. But we look at the agencies that we have. And we look at the expertise that you clearly have. And we feel like there could be some value here that you bring that's a gap in what our other agencies are providing. Let's just do a three-month trial. We'll pay you X. Just, you know, we'll create a new seat at the table with our agency team and just, you know, be the soccer guy. Make sure that we're on the right course. Make sure that our agencies uh, understand soccer, keep us honest. And we'll just see how it goes.
0: Uh, and was that, somebody there, senior, was a fire fan or something that they they knew you? I mean, there has to be. Yeah, I, mean, I know you're great, John, <laughs> but I mean, for an agency in particular to do something like that, is there something else to it, yeah, or is it they, really well, just the,
1: the backstory to that was? Because it is funny how the world all connects, right? So, the backstory to that was when I was at the Chicago Fire and uh, the league opened up the opportunity for teams to sell jersey sponsorship. In the early days of MLS, the thinking was we need to brand our club on the front of the jersey. The Fire, right. we'll put a company on the back. In the Fire's case, it was Honda. That's oh, okay. not authentic soccer sales, but in the early years of starting a league, you know that was smart marketing. Mm-hmm. But there was a point where the league said, "Okay, now we need to monetize the front of the jersey." So we. Um, we were out in the marketplace like every team. We had two companies genuinely interested in buying the front of the jersey. One of them was Best Buy, mm-hmm. and one of them was Degree, which was a Unilever brand. Mm-hmm. And we ultimately went with Best Buy. Um, but throughout the process, you know, I got to know the Unilever guys a little bit. And you know, when I started the agency, I reached back to that relationship, yeah. and that was kind of the, the entree.
0: Right, but that's a point of you don't really know where the networking and relationships can take you it's all that don't ever burn a bridge and 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 you never know where that can go and it paid off big time yeah absolutely for you guys so um you know what uh, the focus now of the of kind of really taking off maybe around 2010 so the last you know seven years at least what other stuff are you focusing on how much again are you doing agencies uh, and brand work? How much are you doing partnership stuff, uh, activation elements for that? Like, is, uh, is there a specialty, or you do all of those things as long as it's within soccer?
1: Yeah, so we, we, we have stayed true to being an integrated marketing services agency. So sometimes I start out conversations um, when I'm explaining the company by saying, here's what we don't do. We don't sell sponsorships. We don't represent athletes. And we don't promote events. And usually somebody says, Well, what do you do? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so we're an integrated marketing services agency. So our client is the brand. We sit brand side and basically we provide strategy and thought leadership as the foundation of everything. You know, if you want to get into the soccer world, you want to connect with the soccer consumer, whatever that might be, mm-hmm. you know, millennial, Gen Z, Hispanic family, female, however you whoever and however you're trying to connect, we will guide you. Don't go into this world of soccer without a guide. Mm. So we provide that strategic direction. And then in terms of what do we actually do beyond thinking, um, that's where we've built out over time um, digital, social, PR, influencer marketing, branded content, whatever label you want to put on that.
0: Yeah, the tactic to take the strategy out. Yeah, and you can you can you come at it agnostically though. Totally figure out what's the best way to do this. We're an
1: agnostic agency, experiential marketing, and promotional marketing. So those are really our four core. What's the
0: where do you see? Is there you know? And we're heading into you know, men's World Cup is less than a year away now, right? And or right about a year away in in Russia. What's, you know, is anything gravitating? And is there, you know, you're seeing any trends in either the way people are bringing sponsorships and partnerships to life? Are you seeing something that with fans or TV broadcasts or anything like what, what what kind of stuff are you seeing and sharing out there with your clients to get on board now while they can? Yeah.
1: I think if you take Half a step back from that question, I mean, soccer has always been about demographics. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the early 90s when I started, it was about soccer mums, right? I mean, how do you reach that family audience? Lots of kids play soccer. This is valuable. How do I connect with that demographic? In 2000, when the census came out, people were like, holy smoke, there's Hispanics in America. <laughs> you know, we, we need to connect to this demographic. How do we do it? Soccer mm-hmm. is a way to do it. Um, I think, you know, more recently, the millennial um, focus and infatuation has been huge, and no question soccer's driving audience is millennials. Um, But I think to answer your question, one of the trends that we're seeing more and more is is Gen Z. Uh, A lot of our clients and, and people that we talk to now are saying, okay, I've got this millennial thing but there's this swath of 21 million kids, post-millennials, um, right around the corner. These people have um, power. These people have lifetime value. These people care about soccer. If you look at the ESPN sports poll, they will tell you that the only sport that is more popular for that demographic than soccer is the NFL. So you've got this big audience that's important to brands. You know, There's evidence out there that soccer is something they care about. Help me figure that that out Mm -hmm. so that's where we're seeing a lot more conversations trending these days which then leads you into tactics a little bit which does inevitably bring you back to you know digital and social and snacking on content more than it does traditional linear tv viewership still important but you know changing
0: you have to fight to get people to pay attention and the your clients to put more ROI and measurement against things, or is there a buy-in now? Because that still seems to be, at least to my opinion, that it's lagging, that there's still too many people that are, okay, that's Cool, we'll do it, or we don't need to measure it that deep, or they're scared of what the measurement would be, or something like that. Are you seeing it change? From digital in that? social media? Yeah, especially yeah. with digital, because you can tell, you know, I was just in talking this week's, um, earlier this week with Mike Gordon on, on The Wolves about it, you know, it could be as specific as working with Ticketmaster to understand where did. That particular person and that demo, where did they come across us? What, what, what was the advertising? What promotion? Where did they find us? How much did they buy? And yeah. how frequently did they come back? There's all that kind of data. Um, it, are they mining clients, mining that enough, or do you have to kind of whack them in the back of the head to do more yeah, of that? And I think
1: that is one of the beautiful things about digital, right? I mean, in theory, big data is out there. Um, now, whether you can actually Process and make sense and make actionable decisions from big data, you know, is clearly one of the challenges that I think a lot of people are, are going through right now. And I think some brands are more sophisticated in how they do that um, than others. I think some are probably under more pressure to make sure that that's there than others at this point. Um, but there's no question, it, it can be much more of an exact science, I think, than other forms of marketing that, you know, really are very hard to put an ROI against. But, you know, we did have a conversation just the other day um, as it relates to, you know, the, what's the value of, of, of conversing and conversation in social, right? I mean, big brands don't usually talk to the consumer, but what if they did? You know, what's the real value of that as opposed to just pushing out um, content? Um, I think some of those questions are still very hard for people to kind of, you know, answer, certainly quantifiably.
0: Now, one thing I've seen on, in your... Work your site and stuff, I'm curious to ask a little bit about or hear more about, too, is that you talk about the six different types of fans. Mm. I'm assuming that goes all the way back to your um, soccer partner's days of identifying and just continuing to build on that data and that information. You've got agnostic, event seeker, domestic, the observer, el fanatico, and the europhile. Uh, Has that changed? Uh, Or does it? I guess I'm sure the answer is yes. So has that changed often? Or has that been a those six fans been the same for a long time? How, how is that?
1: Yeah, I mean we started, we came up with that you know fa- uh, fan segmentation model about three, four years ago, perhaps now. Um, if I think about, it, I never really processed it till you asked that question, but I think those categories have probably existed for twenty years. Mm-hmm. I think the weighting and how you maybe would define them has shifted a little bit. But one of the beautiful things, at least to us, about soccer is, is the amount of soccer that's available. 3,557 games, live soccer matches, unique matches shown in the U.S. in 2016. Hmm. That's 9.8 games, Chris, a day if you averaged it out.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm not rain man, so that, <laughs> I appreciate you doing the math for
1: me. I mean, there is so much soccer on 80 different leagues from around the world. There is so much soccer Available here in the US, which for years, soccer's biggest challenge was access. Now you have access, it's there, but people's passions and people's connection to the sport is very different. So, you know, some of this segmentation that you just talked about, um, Europhiles, for example. Um, those are people that we define as primarily interested in the European game. Mm -hmm. There is a little subset of the subset that we would call Euro-snobs, which is a, (laughs) a term that some people like to have fun with. And these are the people that, look, if it's not Man United or Real Madrid, I don't care. But that's actually a relatively, people are surprised to hear, that's a relatively small segment overall. But there's no question there are people that prefer Chelsea, um, and PSG over the domestic league. But the largest segment of soccer fans are what we would call agnostics. Mm -hmm. They're soccer fans first and foremost, and then they follow teams in multiple leagues. Mm -hmm. So they will have their MLS team, they will have their Premier League team, they will have their La Liga team. If they're Hispanic, they'll have their Liga MX team. And they follow multiple teams in multiple leagues, and they're quite happy to follow more than one team in a league.
0: So you know, we have that's a, very different than almost any other sport, really. Very right? different. Like the only thing I could think of might be similar would be motorsports, where uh, you know the, the larger teams, a Hendrick or Stuart Haas, has multiple drivers, and they cheer for their driver first, and then the other guys in the garage and the, and that team are next. That's I mean that's got to be a heck of an opportunity too. That it's not like this certain fan is only reachable, like you said, maybe the snob is this through this certain big team. But most of them, you can now actually get repetitive touches, so you're building your message across the different leagues, right?
1: And again, that kind of fuels, quite frankly, part of the value of our agency. I mean, soccer is not the one sport, one league model. Meaning, you know, if you're trying to reach basketball fans, you go to the NBA. If you're trying to reach hockey fans, you go to the NHL. I mean, there aren't 80 different valid marketing platforms, but there are multiple. So figuring out which one makes sense for me, who is it actually going to connect with, how is it going to connect, I mean, that's a large part of, of what we do. And I think you know, the world is flat. Digital has you know, changed the game a little bit. And um, we were reading an article today about uh, Deezer, which is a uh, you know, Spotify-type streaming service, um, partnered with Barcelona and Real Madrid, and according to the article that we read, you know, a big part of their motivation was the ability to use the relevance of those two brands, which keep in mind is a brand from England and a brand from Spain to reach American soccer fans. <laughs> and again, I just think that's a very simple, very current insight into how You know, soccer is a, you know, it's a global sport. You know, that's one way to go. You could do an MLS partnership. You could do a U.S. soccer Mm -hmm. partnership. You could do a Mexican league partnership. You could do player deals. Um, You know, it's, to go back to one of my early statements, you know, I'm a Southampton fan because I was born in Southampton. We were, we do a lot of work for the Premier League and we were kind of laughing a little bit at... um, some of the, uh, the content that we were engaging with the other day, uh, there was a fan who was declaring his love for um, Arsenal. You know, that's my team, it's mm-hmm. always been my team, I love the way that they play, and then he immediately followed that up with, but I also like Spurs because I like <laughs> Harry Kane. W- which again is blasphemy I think for a lot of people, but... You know, that's like saying I like the Cubs and the Sox. I mean, you just you don't, right? You've picked your allegiance if you're here in Chicago. Right. But because you're choosing your fandom here for soccer as an American fan, a lot of those traditional principles really don't apply. Hmm.
0: More opportunity, which is great for you. Now, being cognizant of of time. anything i think i i think we've pretty much checked everything off the the list that i wanted to talk about but i i may have missed something any anything else we'd want to talk about within soccer as a whole or with what guilt edge is doing that that i blew by Mm, i think you did a good job wow i like it poking me with good questions there poke the bear well john guppy thank you so much for joining me today on the painless podcast this was a lot of fun Great. Thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. Well, I hope you enjoyed my chat with John. One more brief shout out to the sponsor making today's pod possible with John, the Illinois RST celebram golf outing benefiting the U of I Department of Recreation, Sport and Tourism. Let's see, that's where the RST comes from. Uh, benefiting their scholarship fund on Friday, the eleventh of August, coming up at Deerfield Golf Club in beautiful Riverwoods, Illinois. For foursome's whole sponsorship info more about some of the uh, celebs Illini celebs playing get on uh, Illini RST, golf or contact my guy nick lapin at n-i-k-l-a-p-i-n at aol.com thanks everybody for listening don't forget to get the latest painless emails and if you're not already subscribed you can find all that stuff at painless.network i'm out of here until next time it's chris hartwig saying stay connected friends